Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. What are you going to do? Channing is not going to destroy the happiness of another man's home. You killed him. And he was my ideal. Well, there he lies. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of 50 Date Night Screams. We are working on Murder at Midnight from 1931. I'm Amber Tresca. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Tresca. Hey, Mike, what's good? Uh, we're not recording at midnight. It feels like midnight, but we're not recording at midnight. Well, 30, 30 episodes is pretty good. I'm excited. It's pretty good. Yeah, we live in the Northeast, so it feels like midnight at 4.30 at night in the winter, <laughs> which is what we're in now. Mm-hmm. All righty, so... Let's start with some content warnings about this very interesting film that we're about to go through. All right, Murder at Midnight from 1931. Content warnings that I have are murder. <laughs> midnight? At, oh, we're not just midnight, saying words? No, no, no. We're not just saying words. <laughs> not just repeating words from the title. Okay. It's the actual content warnings of murder, gunplay, and suicide. That's about all that I could think of aside from eating peanuts in a very annoying way. <laughs> you have anything else? Well, there's people, spouses cheating on each other, for sure. Okay. So marital infidelity, I don't know if that's a thing, if that's a trigger warning, without giving the whole plot away. I mean, I think that's about most of it. And there's certainly... Rich people doing charades, which I feel like should be a warning for many people. But <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, although it is no game of charades that I can recognize in any kind of way. So it was really a new one on me. That's one of the many little touches of the film that I think are interesting, but at the same time, too much was crammed into this movie and it wasn't long enough and the storyline did not need everything that they were trying to do with this film. I can appreciate it, but at the same time, it got very frustrating to deal with and to try to understand what was going on. I will admit, all right, I have watched this movie twice. I have watched some sections repeatedly. The first viewing, I was a little bit checked out. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
I was a little bit checked out. On our date night, you were checked out watching this film? I was a little bit. I was seriously just kind of half paying attention, had probably had a long day or whatever the situation was. But the second time I viewed it, I did give it more attention so that I could write the summary. I I like to think of it as 1930s LARPing. The charades game? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so let's get into the stats about this movie. The name, Murder at Midnight. It is from 1931. It is one hour and nine minutes and directed by Frank R. Strayer. It is black and white, and it's a little challenging to watch because of the black and white. And it has a 5.4 out of 10 rating on IMDb. That's kind of high. I think this movie has a little bit of a following. I think it has some fans. Oh, yeah. It's got Millie. It's It's got Millie. Oh, Sue Walker. I don't know. Millie. Well, she's not in it long, but. Yes, there there's an actress. Her name is Alice White. She plays a character called Millie Scripps, who is a maid in the household. Apparently, Alice White got into some trouble. There were some scandals during her time in Hollywood, and that's why maybe her star did not rise quite as high as people expected it to. I did not look into the scandals. I have really don't have any idea what they are, but uh, I we know of their existence. Oh, yeah. all right. Well, then we can get into that as we go through our summary. Now, so the movie opens on a grandfather clock. And we see a hand change the time on the clock from 11.30 to midnight. The next thing we see is a shadowy figure enter the house. And a woman comes down the stairs. The woman tells the shadowy figure that is a man that he shouldn't have come. But then he says he couldn't sleep. It's very dramatic. They embrace. And they're not paying attention to what is going on around them while they are canoodling. And a man with a gun also comes down the stairs and up behind them and turns on the lights. Okay. Turns out that this man is the woman's husband and the husband shoots the other man dead. We figure this is the murder at midnight, right? This is where we're going with this movie. But then suddenly we hear clapping and talking because this was play acting. This was LARPing. What did you call it, Mike? LARPing for... For the 1930s, yes. Pre-code, by the way. This is a pre-code, 1931. So Pre-Hayes code, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's a party going on, and this was a little LARPing that happened in front of all of the party goers. They're calling it a game of charades. And the people at the party are supposed to guess the word that was being acted out in this little play. <laughs> I wrote in my notes that the word is idealized. I don't quite remember how they got to that word. Somebody's lying down. I still don't get the idea part, but somebody's lying down and that's sort of the thing. And then there's this hilarious interplay where one of the characters essentially takes credit for figuring it out and claims he figured it out because the other people tell him what the answer is. And then he says, oh, I figured it out. And then later in the movie, this comes out and you can see on his face that he realizes he's being he never it's weird because it doesn't go anywhere. He never makes a comment, but he does sort of sweat it out for a second. As uh, it's re- casually revealed in the course of a real investigation that he completely lied about being the mastermind behind how he figured out idealized. I still don't know, though. 
Well, yeah, because that small little lie just pales in comparison from for what happens <laughs> to the later. Other lies. <laughs> All right, so we see the house is full of people. Um, there's a butler and a maid hanging around, and we see that it was the butler who changed the time on the clock. The man, and he's a creepy dude. Let's be clear. Oh yeah, he he's is a super big, creep, tall, weird looking dude. Yeah, he he's definitely meant to, at the minimum, make you suspicious of him. Especially with his clock changing, but he's just super weird anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The party's going on. They're all talking. La, la, la. And finally, they realize that this dude that was shot, air quotes, shot, is not getting up from the floor. It's funny, (laughs) because I remember we were watching the movie the first time together, and I was like, why is that dude not getting up from the floor? Like, that's not right. All right, this man's name is Channing. And they go over to him and say, we're all done. The play's over. You can get up. (laughs) And she kicks him. She full on like nudges him with her foot. They like roll him over. He's dead. Dun, dun, dun. So this gun was supposed to be loaded with blanks, but it actually contained live ammunition. Why? 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 Why did the gun need to be loaded with blanks? Why couldn't they just go bang, bang? Go bang. Yeah, take your hand, make the make the finger guns. I'm making the double finger guns, everybody, and go bang, bang. And, and it's quite the discussion where they're like, no, no, you saw me load it with blanks. And you're like, why are all of you idiots doing this? I mean, this is not a movie set. Uh, you know, anyway. I don't know. They were really trying to pull off a great LARP session yeah. for their guests that's it when you call it a larp it actually is makes more sense and it seems more hilarious to me because otherwise this is levels of insanity were like i don't know maybe charades has come a long way i'm not sure but larping i get it anyway the man who shot the gun his name is kennedy and his lawyer is there and his lawyer is like don't talk to anybody about what happened of course his lawyer's there why wouldn't his lawyer be there of course i yeah. invite lawyers to all my charade parties oh, of course we're just like the best of friends all right so the party goes are talking some people are like it's an accident some are like no it was a homicide and like it, meanwhile a man died in front of them and this is the little conversation that they're having like 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 it is an actual larp the police show up sirens the whole deal we're now at eight minutes into the movie just to be clear the man with the gun mr kennedy his Aunt is there, and she's the one that sort of starts talking to the police first off. And as she's talking, that's when I realize that her voice is very familiar, and we look her up. We do use the Google machine in in the start of this movie to find out that this actress also played Auntie M in The Wizard of Oz. This movie came first. (laughs) Yes. But her voice is very recognizable for that reason. And and when you've seen 30 movies, we're starting to think. It's actually not as been true as we thought because there's a lot of actors who are famous and then people mimic their the way they talk or whatever because just like today, right, we know that happens. But it, it, we're starting to think we know people. Like, so-and-so looks familiar. and and But this one was for sure an obvious one, which is Auntie M. At some point, we may need to make a master list of – all the main cast from these movies and just sort of um, you can do that, Mike, you can use your AI skills to create that list and cross reference them and see if there are any repeats because I, I there, there are a couple, but not nearly yeah. as many as we can, we think right. that there are. We keep thinking and it's we like not as much they, when they're all blending together and it's black and white and the metal seem the same, you know, there's, there's all right. There's so much in this movie. All right. So now, 
the police burst in, and I'm just going to say this in the beginning, that this guy playing the inspector is one of the worst actors with one of the worst voices in any of these 30 movies that we've seen so far. He is terrible. Otherwise, everybody does a great job. He's the only one. It's I can't even mimic it. It's so bad. All right. So... <laughs> The police come in and they start asking, where's the other body? Here's the one body. Where's the other body? Everybody's like, we don't know what you're talking about. There's one body. And how did you get here so fast? Turns out they were called at, t- at 1130 and they were told there were two bodies. We find out that the butler changed the clock, not for a nefarious reason, but because Kennedy asked him to. It was, gonna, it was, it was in service to the LARPing, the charade. He wanted the, the, the clock to stroke midnight as they were doing their little play. Right. So that was kind of a little red herring. It didn't make a lot yeah. of sense, except that the timing was off because the people at the party thought that it was later than it was. So there was a disconnect right. when the police got there. All right. Now the next scene, we go to Kennedy. He's in his office and the killer walks in. But we don't know who the killer is. But Kennedy says something like, I knew it was you. It was you who loaded the gun with real bullets. But haha, I wrote a letter naming you and... Whatever happens to me, that's going to come out. Now, we hear a gun go off and out in the parlor, and the inspector goes, there's the other body. And I mean, what a thing to say. <laughs> Wild. Okay. And the other interesting thing, too, is, is that that character has some of the best lines in the movie, and yes. it, it is delivered in the wor- in the most wooden manner that you can ever possibly imagine. All right. Everybody runs upstairs to find the body of Mr. Kennedy. Now we see the maid again, and she's taking care of Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy has, you know, retreated to her fainting couch, and the maid sneaks away, and she's spying on the detectives, right? And the detectives say, well, this is an easy one. It's murder-suicide. There we go. All done. And at that point, very briefly, we see a black gloved hand putting an envelope behind a painting. It is so quick, blink and you'll miss it. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. So these two men, Kennedy and Channing, were friends. So people are like, this doesn't make sense, this murder suicide situation. We don't, that can't be what happened. But then the butler pops up and says, oh, but they had a falling out the other day. Actually. They did have a falling out the other day. I'm like, this guy's a great butler. Just so loyal to <laughs> the family. All he does is just trash everybody. Every conversation he goes in, by the way, so-and-so sucked ass. <laughs> I don't know if you knew. And that's it. That's his contribution. He just comes in. There are other people who are staff. They don't do what he does. He comes in and tells everybody the sauce. Yeah, so... The film is suggesting that the butler's not telling the truth. All right. That's the Mm -hmm. impression that you get. We're now 20 minutes into this movie. And the inspector is annoyed. He can't get any information from anybody. He's not figuring out what happened. He keeps everybody there. And he goes to talk to Mrs. Kennedy. And they're also questioning the maid. Her name is Millie Scripps. They say her name 50 times in the movie. I don't understand Yeah, they don't why. just say Millie, by the way. It's Millie Scripps. Millie Scripps. Millie Scripps. Millie Scripps. They don't Scripps. say just Millie. No. She can't just be Millie. No. Or the maid. Because oh, the butler's like Laurent or Lo- I don't Lawrence, know Lawrence, I think, Lawrence. is his name. Lawrence. Yeah. And uh, But then it's the butler or Lawrence, but Millie Scripps. All right. So the butler turns on Millie. 
and says she's lying about where she was during the second murder. But then they question her some more and they find out that she actually is telling the truth. I don't know why they just don't stop talking to the butler at this point. Because he's just <laughs> throwing people under the bus and he do- he clearly doesn't know what's going on. Either that or he's a suspect, right? We're not sure. Oh, I tell you, Mr. Montrose, everything points to young Grace. He had every motive. His sister, who supported him, suddenly disinherited. And I, I know, Inspector. But we have just as much reason to suspect the lawyer, or the butler, or Millie Scripps. Millie Scripps? Yeah. There's a dame hasn't told everything she knows by a long shot. Gonna haul her down to headquarters in the morning and sweat it out of her. All right, we find out at this point that Mr. Kennedy made a new will and he disinherited his wife. Kennedy gave the will and an an accompanying letter to his lawyer. There are two documents. Two documents. Both of them are missing. Mm -hmm. They were in the lawyer's coat. Oopsie, got stolen at some point during the night. Now the inspector's like, we're not going to figure this out right here and now, so like everybody can go home. Which is weird because that we, we've seen a few films where there's a weird murder, usually at midnight, and everybody has to stay and everybody they solve has to it stay. right yeah. there. Yeah. So this was a, a little bit of a twist because I was surprised that, that he let him go because normally it's like, we're going to get to the bottom of this and nobody goes home. Um, and because it's black and white, we figured out, I think it was day. They had been there for a morning. while. Yeah. But they do. They go home. Yep. They go home. And then they decide they're going to put a policeman on every floor of the house. It doesn't, I don't understand that. Um, but that just shows you how big this house is and how ridiculous that whole situation is. Now, it's the next day, and the butler gets all of the cops to leave their posts and go down to the kitchen because he's like, come down for some food. And, of course, because this is pre haze and all the cops are like these big gavon, you know, <laughs> they all go down <laughs> for some food. So now the butler and the maid are arguing again. Then we see the maid call the police and she tells them, come at nine o'clock in the morning because I have some information for you. Not really sure what day it is now because it was day, but now she's saying come in the morning. Like, I think it was, I think it was supposed to be another day. So this is like the second morning after the murder. The cops come the next morning, nine o'clock as asked to do. And one of the other people in the house, I believe, this gets very confusing, dear listeners, the amount of people in this film and their relationships to one another, (laughs) it is very confusing. I believe Walter is Mrs. Kennedy's brother. Okay. So Mm -hmm. Walter is staying at the house. Walter's packing up. And we find out that the maid, Millie Scripps, uh, was blackmailing Walter in some way, saying, you need to marry me or I'm going to go to the police with yada, yada, yada. We don't know what that is. Right. And there's a lot of, (laughs) this movie is tremendously hampered by things happening off screen, right? So that implies that they had a sexual relationship, I think. But it's never said. Like, you're like, why is she black? Well, no, they wouldn't say that. Yeah. But not even, like, you just don't, you're like, this is weird. Why is she saying this at all to him? I don't know. Was and there's pregnant? a lot of implications of, Something. right, right. We don't know. Pregnant, class distinctions that, you know, he's a rich person and she's a uh, mate. We don't know, but it, it's so, and it's quick, too, because you're like, oh, oh okay. okay, so he's being, like, what could it be so bad that he could be blackmailed? Like, we don't even understand. But it doesn't matter because we're not going to get enough time to explore that because. Nope. Because Millie is also found dead. Boo. 
By the time they find her, she had been dead for several hours, and the room is clearly ransacked. So now they go to Walter, and they arrest him, and they say, well, you must have done the murders. And they're questioning him and threatening him in, in like, a weird way that I didn't understand, but they're threatening him with electricity or something. I don't know. I don't know if that meant Well, they're the threatening electric chair. electric chair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, but then they're like, the one cop who eats peanuts is just grating to listen to the peanut cracking. Yeah. It's like, <gasps> Yeah. Death by peanut. Death. Yeah. Nutty death. I don't know. Yeah. Nutty death. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The butler, now, because there was this policeman who was eating the peanuts and leaving the shells everywhere in the house, it was like no person in the history of ever would do that. <laughs> like an elephant. <laughs> like an elephant. <laughs> unless you were really trying to just be a real dick. All right. <laughs> Anyway, the butler's got to clean up all these peanut shells. So he's so using... this is relevant. This is it's relevant. relevant. That's why I put it in the notes. Mm-hmm. All right, he's using the vacuum. He's Who cleaning... Knew that there were vacuums in 1930? It was, it was interesting. <laughs> I was like, no, look at that vacuum. I bet those vacuums were amazing. Unlike our vacuums today, which break every couple of years. <laughs> okay, so he's vacuuming, he's cleaning... Guess what he finds? He finds the envelope with the letter and the will in it. <gasps> he goes to call the inspector. But while he is doing so, the phone goes dead. Again, we see very briefly a hand outside cutting the phone lines to the house. The cops are like, oh no, the phone went dead. And they rush over to the house. Now I put in my notes here that two very important pieces of information The letter being hid and the phone line being cut were so quick that you could very easily miss it. And other parts of the movie are repeated by characters. These things were not repeated or shown again in a flashback or anything like that. And the the envelope was behind a painting. And and then it was on the floor. Yeah. Right. So you have to kind of put it together. First, you have to, if you remember, and I did, I sort of made a mental note. I was like, okay, I think there's only one really big picture it could have been hidden behind, which is behind this sort of piece of furniture across or near where the cop was eating peanuts. And of course, then the vacuuming behind there is because it fell down, but they yes. never show it fall. No. So it's a little bit like, did somebody play? But it, no, the assumption I realized later was that it fell. It fell from behind it there. It fell. But again, yeah. And behind a piece of furniture, and then the butler moves the furniture to clean behind it, which, good butler. I know a lot of people that do cleaning, and they don't pull out the furniture (laughs) to vacuum behind the furniture. I was a dig at me. And then Amber goes and looks and says, did you all vacuum in here? Did you pull out the furniture? All right, so he was. Sometimes. Even though he was a jerk and throwing everybody under the bus, he maybe was a decent at buttling. Buttling? Buttling. At buttling. Buttling. Okay. This is the, coming up is the best line of the whole film. I don't know what it is, but you're going to tell me. All right. So cops show up. They find the butler. He is also dead right near the phone. The cops. And the... Go ahead. <laughs> we have to put it. I hope you can put it in. He says, the one cop says, is he dead? Now he's on the floor, obviously dead. And he yells, no, it's his day off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did actually. I captured that audio. I was hoping that oh, I please. could Thank you. Because it's. Yeah, so it's that inspector who's who is terrible as an actor, but he gets that one line off. Of those. He gets that one line. He gets that one line off. All right, so the butler's dead. The cops are looking at the phone, and they're like, 
this phone is really heavy. Yeah, it's too heavy. And it's like wild. Okay. <laughs> and so they're pulling the phone apart and they find that there it was spring loaded. There was a needle in the phone. And then when the butler jiggled the handset because the line went dead and the first thing you do Dear listeners who are under the age of 40, <laughs> when you had a phone that had the contact and you, I don't know, I never did this, Mike. Did you ever do it that something was not right with the phone and you would like hit the, hit it a couple of times? But that's I've what they were I've had it by doing. accident and hung up on people. That used to happen. Oh, yeah. But not, yeah. I wouldn't do it the reverse yeah. where you'd be like, it's not working. Diggle, 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 diggle. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. That, no. I've never did that. But that's what. But these are our 1930s old-timey phones. Who knows if they even work 50% of the time? I don't know. That that might be true. So because what that would do is that would break the contact. So if you were trying to contact somebody, why would you break the contact? Unless you were just trying to hang up to start over again. That might be something that you would do but anyway it's uh reminds me more of like a toilet handle you know <laughs> jiggle, yeah. jiggle the handle, jiggle the handle. <laughs> so when the butler did that and he jiggled the handset the spring that was the thing that made the spring release the needle and the needle went into his ear and i guess into his brain killing him instantly so that was his that was how he died, poor thing. And I love, there's like a, and that is why we couldn't find the murder weapon. And like, there's like a whole sentence that just goes, secret murder death needle embedded in phones that kills people instantly. Instant death, too, by the way. Not paralysis, not the person gurgling or going, what the hell happened to me? There's something in my ear. Nope, they just instantly die. Instantly die. It's quite a needle. Mm-hmm. Is he dead? No. It's his day off. After I watched this sequence a couple of times while I was capturing that amazing line from the inspector and trying to understand what happened here, it occurred to me that we've seen an awful lot of movies where phones were used as a murder weapon, and I began to wonder... If people of the time had some kind of suspicion regarding phones or the technology was new enough that they were putting it in all of these movies as a murder weapon or if it was all of the above or what was going on there. I really don't have any idea, but that was what occurred to me while watching this movie. I don't think that's wrong. I think there was an anxiety about technology in a lot of ways in the same way um, we see with medical science. You see that a lot where it's it, there's definitely this like, well, there's a couple things. One, the idea that anyone who is involved with detecting crime and using th- psychology or sort of these kind of uh, logical deductions about people based on their backgrounds was so- is a criminal themselves. That's a big thing, right? That comes up a lot. So that's one where there's a distrust of sort of this new methodology of determining crime that's not simply based on direct, you know, witnessing it. Um, so that I think that's one thing. Certainly, to your point, the technology of the time, which manifests a lot of ways, um, one of them being this this stuff, which is using a phone, a lot of medical doctors. Uh, one of the things that's really fascinating from Oz, from uh, Frank L. Baum, he wrote Wizard of Oz, speaking of Wizard of the Oz, of Wizard of Oz, but he, uh, and Antium, he uh, was really concerned about baby incubators, the idea, the, the warming uh, beds that babies had. And they, right. there was like a whole thing that people were worried about that it like changed the baby's gender and didn't. So it was really fascinating, the stuff that we don't even think of. 
um, that people were really concerned about. And sort of the way I think people have been worried about telephone poles and microwaves and, and any kind of transmissions in the air. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's right. I think people definitely had a distrust of things they didn't fully understand how they worked. Um, and But they, they certainly used them a lot. And I think there was this kind of implication that if you just, you know, blindly use these tools, somebody could use them against you, which isn't wrong. No, and we way. absolutely have many parallels today. You pointed out a couple of them. There's a few more, which we won't get into right now. But same <laughs> kind of thing. New technology, new ways of doing things, paradigm shift, and it makes you suspicious. And that is showing up in all of these movies of the time. It's just so interesting because we're like of a phone, of a house phone, <laughs> a landline. It's kind of interesting. Something that we consider to be mundane and actually now rapidly becoming obsolete in some mm -hmm. corners of the world. Now they're going to go and they're going to question Mrs. Kennedy for the first time. So they get her to use the phone. Remember, the phone line has been cut. It's actually kind of brilliant, this movie, these little touches. I wish they had leaned into it more and that the movie was a little longer because they're trying to trap her here, okay? So they ask her to make a phone call. And she goes, oh, I don't remember the number. And so you've got this couple of minutes of little tension here where you're like, maybe she is the murderer. Because if she is, then she would stall about using the phone, right? Because she would have been the one that booby trapped it. So, but that's not actually, actually what happens. She does try to make a phone call, finds out the line is dead. And they're like, oh, okay, it's not her. You know, it's like you could this, almost hear you could almost hear the tension just like right. leak out of the room. And there's no music, so normally you'd have rising violins, sort of yes. really telling us yes. that this is about to go and bad. Close-ups and, and, and all of that, right? But they so do a pretty good is, job is anyway. Lacking. Yeah, they do. All things considered, it's a 1931 film. They do, but it is this is definitely another one of those fabulous entrapment things. It's a pre-code uh, where we're just like, yeah, police are just gonna test you to see right which of course is a is relevant later but it is sort of a fascinating um thing where you, like you said first you have to be with it enough to understand that they're suspecting her and second the argument is if you knew what was going on you wouldn't use the phone presumably right so you would you would avoid making the phone call or come up with some kind of excuse so that it, that it does set up a paradigm there that they want to test again but it, it is sort of a fascinating like I don't know. Some, in some ways, the police don't seem all that strategic. And all of a sudden, there's this mastermind plan uh, right like, in the heat of the moment. Split second. You know? He comes yeah, up yeah. with that. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. All right. Now we have another just brilliant little scene where we see somebody coming up on Walter. I think it's Walter. <laughs> and we see the shadow of this person and they're holding a gun coming up on Walter. And he's like fussing with papers or something. And to his like, head, too. Like, to his like head. To his head. To his yeah. head. And yeah. you're like, oh, here it is. It's the murderer. We're going to find out. No. It's just Auntie again. And <laughs> she says, somebody took the real bullets out of my gun and put in blanks. This is hilarious for so many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Auntie has her own gun. 1930s, folks. 1930s. Everybody has a gun. <laughs> keeps it in her room. She was checking it. And it was loaded in her room, and she knows that somebody replaced 
uh, the bullets. I want to see Auntie M at the gun range. I feel like she would be a badass auntie, like just seeing her blast away at targets or something and just be like, don't mess with Auntie M. You know what? <laughs> what I didn't really go back and try to figure out here was the two guns because Auntie's gun is kind of this little, like, women's put it in your purse kind of. Yeah, gun. Mm-hmm. I don't know guns, people. I I couldn't name it if I, you know, I can't. But it is a tiny little thing, and yeah. I don't know what the other gun was. So yeah, I don't. Would remember. they use the same caliber? Have no idea. Probably not. I felt like it was a revolver, the other one. But that I was a remember. revolver, and then this one looked like yeah, a think. pistol, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we flash to another very quick scene, but also a very nice touch. We see Mrs. Kennedy putting bullets into her face cream, into her jar of face cream. It looks like like a night cream. It looks pretty thick. And she's like pushing them down into the... Hopefully that was some cheap ass night cream because I'm telling you what, the prices on that fucking stuff, <laughs> like you're going to junk it up with some bullets. I, I think I'd find a lot of other places before I put it in my face cream because my face cream is expensive. But uh, again... Very quick, blink and you miss it. Auntie's thinking about the butler. He's thinking about what he was doing before he was killed. And she realizes, she puts it all together. It's this very comedic scene. I'm not going to go into it. But she realizes that the letter is in the vacuum. And it is. She opens up the vacuum, pours out all the peanuts and everything, and finds the letter in it. Mrs. Kennedy comes in the room. And Auntie says, oh my gosh, I have the letter. I'm going to take it to the police. Okay, Mrs. Kennedy says, no, you shouldn't do that. And they go back and forth a little bit. And finally, Auntie says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it to a different person, Philip Montrose, who's a a criminologist. Okay, (laughs) it's like, who heretofore, he, like, where was he in the movie? I don't even remember where he was. He's the the guy who gives the answer to... uh idealization or whatever whatever that he's he's the one no, he's, he's not. the one playing who's that yeah, yeah. who's that it's him playing cards no he, it's him right. and auntie yeah. oh he gives the answer to the lawyer and the lawyer says Correct. that he came up with it oh, okay yeah yeah, yeah. Yes, all right yes right. he gives yes. it he's the one he's the smart one he's the smart mastermind yeah. he's the smart yeah. criminologist one yeah, yeah yeah yeah. okay all right and they mention that because they're like just like the crime at whatever that philip so had brief so like super <laughs> brief and of course nothing in a movie is by accident it's there on purpose so you know things are going to come around again but that was very brief so i did not obviously put that together right away and also at this point the letter has become mystically cursed because both what's her name correct and and they could like are you sure you want to even everybody who touches it dies yeah it's a really weird like we go from trying to really solve or explain things in the context of sort of science and 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 logic, and then it starts to become, you know, I wouldn't even be associated with that because you might end up dead. <laughs> right, but there is a reason why Mrs. Kennedy is trying to separate Auntie from the letter. All right, so Auntie says, "I'm going to take this to the criminologist." And I'm going to go through the back alley or whatever. Like, it's wild. And then there's a few more false starts where she, like, runs into people on the way out of the house that you're like, oh, no, she's going to get it. They show they show someone picking up a hammer. And so it's, like, tons of red herrings everywhere. It's so interesting. I 100% loved that part of it. Okay. So now Mrs. Kennedy picks up the phone. 
dear filmmakers, the phone is dead. How this bitch making a phone call? <laughs> Answer me. I, I do not know how. Okay. That's a good question. Yeah. Because it was cut. They cut the wire. They cut the I line. Think the, I think the argument was it was cut to that phone. Um, again, this is 1930s tech. It's not our tech where you'd have one set of phone lines. So it maybe there's a different line for each phone. Really? That's my only expert. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Well, I wasn't the only one that had that question. There were some other reviewers that had that question as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. So, all right. So Mrs. Kennedy is making a phone call and she says, hello, darling. Did you get the passports? And now you're like, ooh. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> all right. So now she says to whomever is on the other end of the line, Auntie has the letter, she has the will, and she left via the back alley. Now we see a man's hands messing with the phone. Presumably booby-trapping the phone since we've done so much running around over what's going on with the phones. And the camera pans out. And who is it? It's the criminologist, Philip Montrose, who inexplicably has a skull on his desk. Not that I'm one to point fingers. There is also a skull <laughs> on my desk, just out of frame, but I can bring it here. And listeners, you can't see because this is a podcast, but I do have a 3D printed replica of a skull that is in residence on my desk, even though looks Halloween good. is past. Okay. In any case, we're, we're seeing that it's Philip Montrose. Auntie Julia shows up at his office, and she says, I have the will, and I have the letter. She opens the letter, even though Philip says, don't open that. Okay, she does it anyway. I really like her, I have to say. <laughs> She's really just going to get it done. So Montrose then fakes a call to the inspector, another fake phone call happening here. And he has, like, a little buzzer thing, right? So it's not just fake, like... Ring, well, ring. No, no, no. He has like a little he, flip thing, right? He makes a phone call out, okay, mm -hmm. and says, I'm calling the inspector, and then he wants Auntie Julia to talk to the inspector. So she picks up the phone, and she's like, uh, like there's nobody there. And now you're thinking, is the phone going to give her a needle to the brain, but it doesn't happen. She hangs up the phone, just as the inspector, who was supposed to be on the phone, right, but he shows up at the door. So he's there now. He well, opens. and dramatically, right? Dramatically. She's like, he's not there. And he's like, yes, I am. I'm he's right like, here. Da, da, da. <laughs> so, well, sort of. It is a dramatic fashion as is possible with this person <laughs> that was trying to be an actor and failing. I'm sorry. He, like, I shouldn't, really I shouldn't like be him. so mean. But he just, <laughs> like, were. there was an opportunity for a person to really choose some scenery. Mm -hmm. in that role and it just didn't go down that way all right so the inspector shows up at the door he opens the letter and it says in the letter that philip montrose and mrs kennedy were having an affair and that was why mr kennedy disinherited her and wrote the letter and presumably why all of the murders have taken place and that montrose was Probably the one that did all of the murdering is what you're realizing now. So here is where you see that Montrose has a button under his desk. It is not small. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone entering the office would be like, what's that under your desk? <laughs> he pushes it with his shoe, with his foot, 
and it makes the phone ring. The inspector picks up the phone, but then you see him again. He's got this split second, like maybe he's not all that stupid, but he's got this split second realization that I'm picking up a phone and this dude was probably the murderer and I'm picking up his phone. And it's heavy. It's heavy. They made that point. Which was used to kill other people. So, all right. But then he doesn't really use the phone. He sort of like answers it, but then he goes, Montrose, I'm afraid the call is for you. (laughs) So he hands over the phone to Philip Montrose. And what does Philip Montrose do? So now he's nobody there. There's nobody there. There was it was not a phone call. So he jiggles the handle and then boom, falls over dead. And I'll tell you what, Mike, when I watched this the second time, I darn near like sprang out of my chair like that, (laughs) that discharge of the needle and then him falling over really like scared the wits out of me, truly. Well, what's fascinating is the way I've seen it described, and I think this is true, is there's a choice he has to make. He knows there's nobody there. He knows. He knows the inspector knows that, that he knows the inspector that knows that there. he knows that there's nobody there. So he has a choice. Either he gives it up and says, obviously I'm the murderer and take me away in cuffs, or he commits suicide. And that's essentially what he does. He, he chooses to commit suicide. But it is interesting because I think there's a little bit where you're like, did he know that was going to happen? Did he get flustered or whatever? But no, I think the point was he's if he's this criminal mastermind, and certainly he's been doing this, that was a choice he made at the end to go out on his own terms. Well, okay. So what happens is, is that Auntie Julia rushes over to Montrose, and the inspector is just kind of standing there, and he says, he was the murderer, and his death is the confession. I don't know about the suicide thing. There was somebody else that wrote that they thought that Montrose may have assumed because the booby trap didn't go off when Julia was messing with the phone that maybe it wasn't working and so he was going to take his chances but why would you do it at all why do any of that at all when you know that he knows that you know so why not just be like there's nobody on the phone what are we going to do now unlike the actor for the police officer the guy who plays philip montrose is a good actor and i think if you watch that scene he has a look on his face he does have a look yeah that says the gig the jig i don't know how you say it but it's it's up he knows what's coming and he does it like a man resigned to his fate so i i feel like the actor sells certainly the idea that he it's a choice he makes it's not an accident but that's part of the beauty of movie making it's open to interpretation open to interpretation here's the thing Auntie Julia gets the last line. It's just, it's fantastic. The inspector says, it's really too bad, actually, that this went down that way. And he's talking about Montrose. And he says, the police department could have used a brain like that. And Julia says, the police department could use any brain. (laughs) The end. That is 1930s. Auntie M, 1930s magic. You just can't beat it. There were You know who would not fall for this? You know who wouldn't fall for this? I know what you're going to say. I'm going to let you have it. (laughs) 
I'm going to let you Sue have it, Walker. Sue Walker. Sue Walker would grab that phone oh, and take it out of the house. She would. And bring it she to the would. Police. She would have, yes, because that is actually what she did in one of the other movies the other movie. where the phone is a murder weapon. Thank you. One yes. of the other, I think this is now the third movie where a phone is a murder yes. weapon. And that's why mm-hmm. I was like, what? Why are people of the 30s so afraid of the fucking landlines? I don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> Because there's needles in them, I there, There's needles. At this point, I don't want to answer the phone in my own house. There could be needles in it. it doesn't make any sense. Oh my gosh. Now that we're now that we've gotten through all of that. <laughs> that was effort. But satisfying. I felt like like sometimes we go through this and I'm just angrier than when I watched the no. film. That was cathartic. I felt better after that. So thank you. All right, good. All right. But what do you think? Is this a horror movie or something else? Um, there are actually some scenes of horror, actually, uh, as you mentioned. But its I wouldn't say it's a horror movie. It's, it's definitely a thriller. It's definitely meant to be a murder mystery. Uh, it's probably one of the few we've seen that kind of lives up to it. I think a lot of them want to be murder mysteries, and they're just terrible at it. Uh, or they end up being funny, or they end up being a bunch of other things. This one does a pretty good job of balancing. There's some humor, but, you know, people are getting murdered. Uh, they get offed too quickly because of the runtime. But I no, I, I definitely felt like this was more of a, a thriller or a murder mystery. The movie kept you guessing, and it had you looking at different characters one by one. Most of them then ended up dead themselves. So it was a little Agatha Christie in that way. Yeah. But there was no way for you to figure out who was the murderer because he was not really one of the main characters if you looked at, like, screen time. Yeah. No, it's not a whodunit. I mean, it, you're not meant to figure this out. Although it was interesting. Once you figure out that the wife was cut out of the will, that's sort of a big hint. And then, which was weird because nobody else seemed to be like, well, what the hell? Nobody's, why? Why was that? And then the other piece was that for all intents and purposes, the film gives everything away in the first five minutes, right? So Philip Montrose is the person who knows the answer. He's the mastermind behind the death because he basically solves, quote, solves the case. And then, um, uh, there's this, they play act the LARP of uh, a jealous spouse um, being murdered or or murdering. I don't remember who murders who. Yeah. The, uh, the, that plays out. The, the jealous husband murders the the lover. So, yeah. Right. So this is almost like reversed, yeah. right, in some sense, because he's, he's sort of the lover. But yeah, and then they, and then there's a very quick, oh, the needle to the brain is just like this other case. And we're like, what? I don't know what Philip that was. Philip Montrose worked on. Yeah. And we're like, nah, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Which was also a little odd. And I didn't know if it was something from the time that you're supposed to know about. Well, yeah. The problem is they try and establish him as one of these great criminologists. Again, which we've seen probably three times. And it's always the guy who turns out to be the murderer. But um, they really didn't work on his credentials much. They sort of say that. And you're like, is he? I don't know. What did he solve? What? Well, um, the only thing that becomes clear is desk. So he was a great criminologist. That's <laughs> so all. You that's all are... you need is a skull on your desk. That's that just proves it. <laughs> that just proves. The other thing is that the cops are very chummy with him. There's a lot of sort of yeah. like, are you going to tell him stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, dialogue, and that is sort of a little bit of an explanation, which does happen a lot, right? You see that in the movies where like this criminologist is almost he's like a member of the police, even though he's not, and they tell him a lot of stuff they shouldn't tell him. But other than that, yeah, it was. there's a lot of shorthand about his character that's not really explained in the movie. Is that a – okay, a criminologist. Is that a still a career path? Like, is that a thing? Do you know what I'm saying? So 
the concept came about. So that's your Sherlock Holmes. Right. That's your August We Dupont, would call them detectives or something Correct. like that today. Yeah. But criminology evolved, right? It wasn't always, it was, it was considered to be something that scholars did, not something that police did, right? So police okay. didn't really elevate investigative work. I mean, certainly as fingerprinting and other things came along, that got more and more. But generally speaking, no, that wasn't their specialty and they didn't have detectives. That's right. So, and that's what happened to the genre. The genre shifted from these playboy criminologists to actual detectives on the force who were different from police, Right. right. And I think that somebody said, does somebody say that in the film? I feel like somebody was like, oh, you know, officer, whatever. And he's like, detective. He's like, no, he's like inspector. Yeah. Inspector. Right. And I also don't so know the difference between detective and inspector and right. like, and what, yeah. or whether they're interchangeable type terms or. Yeah. I think that, I think inspector was, well, certainly he was implying inspector and, you know, officer's different. But yeah, yeah I think uh, it changed over time. But it was a thing where the idea being that uh, people who did this were firstly to, not to be trusted. Because they're almost always the criminal themselves because they know too much. They right? know, they know the things. perfect crime. Yeah. Uh, and that that wasn't something that normally was in the police. They always either worked with at odds with or with the police. But the police were sort of deferential to that person. And again, that that all went away. Then you got your Columbos and everybody else who's right. part of the force. Right. Interesting. Okay. So not a horror movie. No. He knew the butler always used it. But, Inspector, who cut the telephone wires while you were phoning? Huh? Young Grayson was in jail, you know. Of course. This isn't a murder case. It's an epidemic. Then let's move on to the ratings that we're going to give this movie, as usual. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, so we have come up with our own rating system, which is knives, glasses of wine, and screams. And we are going to start with knives. And this represents what was the body count? How scary was it? Was it gory? Or did it live up to its title? And we're going to give it somewhere between zero and five knives. Mike, I'm going to start with you. What do you think about Murder at Midnight? So Murder at Midnight is conscious of being a murder at midnight like they actually said it they tried right we've laughed at some of these other phantom midnight phantoms and stuff and you're like i don't even know why people are still up at midnight or what the hell they're doing this this movie actually knew that and sort of faked it with the butler changing the clock and all that um the other thing was it it it's a little bit of a sleight of hand where you've got people play acting murder and then there's real murders happening in the background and then but that's a conceit that lasts maybe five minutes and then they move into you know proper people being murdered (laughs) without the the dressing of a LARP or a, or charade. So there was enough death here uh, for it to be disturbing. The characters weren't fleshed out well enough to miss them, unfortunately. So a lot of them are staff. Millie, my heart goes out to you, but I'm sorry you didn't have enough time to, uh, to last. So it's unfortunate because there was a lot of characters that I think would have been more interesting if we got to see more of them. And then you would have felt their death a little stronger. I mean, you get actually pretty in- invested in an anti, not M, but I'll call her anti M. Uh, and then she's one of the ironic ones who doesn't die because they knew she was, she was gold. Right. Um, so there's definitely this sort of faint at you're going to lose somebody that you really care about, but it doesn't really happen. So, and by the way, almost everything is off screen. Just about every single death is off screen, uh, more or less. So, you add all that up, and I, I'm going to give it. I mean, there are more than one murder, right? So there's, there's a couple, four. and those people die. So I'm going to give it two and a half. Okay, uh, I agree. I am going to give it two because moderate body count. 
that end death scene definitely like I was shook I had to watch it again because I wasn't really sure what happened and I kind of really didn't want to watch it again because it was kind of a lot uh but it wasn't gore it did live up to its title though so I'm gonna give it two knives all right and our next rating is glasses of wine and this represents was it fun to watch did he have did it have any unique moments between zero and five glasses of wine what do you think Mike I actually like. I was not disturbed by the terrible acting of the cop. I thought that fit his character perfectly. He seemed horribly <laughs> awkward and, and just really disinterested in everything. And I, I just loved it. I loved the whole thing. Uh, I like this a lot. Um, I liked Millie. I liked um, who really does a lot with not talking. Ironically, she does a lot of looking uh, off screen. Uh, Auntie M was amazing. Ironically, Philip Montrose doesn't do much. Uh, the, the lawyer actually does more acting in some ways than than some of the other people. But um, there's this is a pretty big cast of characters. And the film does reward you with some feints and some stuff, which we ha- it, which feels modern. For a 1931 film, we've seen worse. We've seen way worse. Um, so I'm going to give it four. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Wow, four. I don't think I'm going to go that high. I think I'm going to go with three. But the scenes of a shadowy figure coming up with a gun... And then it turning out just to be Auntie Julia <laughs> asking why are there not real bullets in my gun? And then putting the bullets in the face cream. Like, very interesting little touches. I just wish that they had had some time to breathe. Mm-hmm. And then the idea of there was this cop that was eating the peanuts and it had to be cleaned up. And that's how he found the letter. And so uh, all of that, some really unique moments. And then... Auntie Julia leaving the house and she's like, she runs into like the chauffeur. Like you're thinking all of these people are going to like murder her, you know? And of course, (laughs) none of them, none of them do. She of course just Mm -hmm. goes right to the murderer thinking that he's going to help her. So I really did love all of that. But even so, um, I'm still going to give it just three glasses of wine. All right. And then we have an overall rating that is screams and it does not have to be any kind of an average of knives and wine. It is its own separate thing. It is an overall rating. And how many screams do you think, Mike? Yeah, so this is where I'll go a little lower. Mm. Um, I enjoyed the film, but I'm cognizant of the film's flaws, right? It's too short. Yeah. The acting is uneven. Uh, There's too many characters. They don't get enough background to sort of understand who's... There's a lot of things that were interesting, but the film didn't earn it, right? So you're like, like you said, you have to watch it multiple times. Um, so I'll do three and a half. You know, I'd like to give it a four. I enjoyed it f- on a four level, but I didn't. I'm also aware that like I, you know, I. so that was my second viewing. The first time I watched it, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I really didn't. <laughs> yeah. and, th- and there's things that you mentioned now that made more sense to us, us discussing it. So it was definitely it's a challenging film, but it's an ambitious film. Totally ambitious. Could have dealt could have benefited from a little more spoon feeding. I think you absolutely have to pay attention and be connecting the dots on things so that you understand what's happening. There were some things that never really got wrapped up properly. So who did replace the bullets? Was it Mrs. Kennedy? Was it Montrose? Like, why was she only then putting bullets into her face cream? Right. Um, What did go on between Millie and Walter? We don't know. Millie, probably the most interesting character in the whole film because we find out she was blackmailing somebody, you know, just like so interesting. And 
disinheriting your wife. I don't know that you can disinherit your own wife. I don't think that works that way. And it's a weird way to do it, too. Like, I was like, that, because I, I don't know if she knew right away or she found out that day, like, because there was an argument, right? So there's a lot of these things that we were like, I don't know who knew what. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. It was interesting. You need to watch it more than once. I got something different out of it, watching it and then re-watching certain scenes. There were some really just totally killer lines um, that may have been driven home better <laughs> if there were a, uh, a an actor that could have done more with those lines. Or maybe even if they had just had more time. Maybe it was just that they were just filming it quickly and, you know, this is – you only get two takes or whatever had happened. But for those reasons, I think I am going to give it three glasses of wine. As or, Fair. Oh, my gosh. Three screams. As my overall rating, yeah, it um, it also was. This is it's 1931, so there's not a score really. There's uh, and that there's too. zero music. None. So there's just like deafening, and the transfer has like a thrum in it or something in the background too. So it, it does get a little like, wow. But it, I mean, we've seen films without that, and it's been a slog. This one isn't. Uh, so it's it's good enough that it sort of survives without the music, but it it is one of those things where if we just had better audio, if it had been a cleaner transfer, and if it had music, I think it would it would flow better too. So it's it's unfortunate because it is a little bit ahead of its time in some ways. Yeah, totally. When I was watching it on the computer with my headphones on, there were points where I was hearing something. Yeah, I I don't know where it came from. Whether it's an artifact of the transfer, whether Whoever put it on YouTube decided to put a little piece of music in it or something. It didn't sound terribly intentional. It wasn't very loud, but there was something there. But there was not a soundtrack, and there certainly wasn't the sort of stingers that you expect. When you see a shadowy figure walking up with a gun, you would expect to, you know, hear a little bit of a stinger and then mm -hmm. maybe a release as you realize that it was Auntie and not the murderer. Uh, so that would have heightened it. This is one of those things, and I think I've said this before about other movies as well, that if somebody wanted to go and try to score this movie, I, I think that, look, nobody's going to pay you to do it. So that's <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think if somebody wanted to do it, it would really, really improve the movie, and I would be really interested in seeing how it played did it have a proper score? Oh, and you know what another reviewer mentioned was the use of sound. And it didn't really occur to me so much until you got to the scene with the vacuum cleaner, which was so loud. It didn't need to be that loud. And Auntie Julia was very disturbed by the noise of the vacuum cleaner, which makes sense to me. If you think about that time, the world was a lot quieter than it is today. And the roar of a vacuum, if you ever ran a vacuum before our modern ones, if you ran a vacuum in the 70s or the 80s, they were really, really loud, deafening. Mm -hmm. And so she tries, she keeps trying to get the cook out of the room because she's tired of hearing the vacuum. And some of the other uses of sound when Montrose falls over that sound, I mean, it really, it, it is something else. So they did have... A very interesting and unusual, I think, for the movies that we've seen in that time, use of sound. And so I did really uh, appreciate that. It almost seemed in certain points that 
the movie was in service of the sound versus the sound being in service of the movie. That was just a slightly interesting point. But I'm still only going to give it three screams. Can we talk about Alice? Alice what? White. Yeah. Oh, all her, right. Her so sex scandal. Alice White, who played Millie Scripps, there was something that went on in her life that resulted in her not, even though she was an excellent actress, good-looking woman, she didn't uh, end up being quite the darling of Hollywood as she was, I, I think a lot of people thought she might be. So, Mike, what what is this supposed sex scandal that she was in the middle of? It's not quite. <laughs> prepare to be disappointed. Um, I know. So, it, it, look, it's still dramatic. It's just sex scandal is a strong word. Uh, so she, so the, like a few of the actresses of the time, she was transitioning from the to the talkies, right? So this is an actress who's transitioning. I think people feel like she had a little bit of a Betty Boop style voice. I don't actually think so. Um, I didn't think she was. We, we've heard other actresses who were more extreme. Uh, I thought she was fine. Not at all. And when she was like giving it back to the butler, it like it was fine. So yeah, there was she no, didn't come off. No, it didn't come strange. off that way. She definitely had the the sort of wide eyed sort of look that was valuable for silent movies because um, she could emote, right? And I think she does a really surprisingly she good job. She, she didn't talk that much. So there's a lot of looks and sort of really makes her look guilty, frankly, um, that she manages to convey better than everybody else combined. So I, I really thought uh, Alice White did a great job. But so now she transitions in and that becomes a challenge, right? So everybody's dealing with this and all the studios are trialing these actresses to see if they're going to make it in the new medium. And it's a weird time, right? So some of this, apparently she, there's a rumor, we don't know if it's true or not, she wouldn't tap dance. Um, so she's in one of the films where she has to tap dance and either she's just straight out refused to take lessons. We don't know what the issue was. So they used somebody else. And there's a lot of that kind of questions. Of It sounded like she was difficult to work with. So that didn't help. But the big thing that the sex scandal, air quotes sex scandal, is she was involved with John Warburton, who was a minor British actor. And writer-producer Cy Bartlett. And so it's, you have a little bit of a love triangle. And what happened was there was trial. So this went to trial that accused Warburton of beating Alice White. So in retaliation, she and Bartlett hired people to beat up Warburton and disfigure his face. Oh. Uh, she married Bartlett later. It didn't save her reputation. So now a lot of people are like, I don't know that that was the... What caused it? It didn't help um, right. because she sort of disappeared. So she sort of did films a little bit after that. Her last film was with uh, Joan Crawford in Flamingo Road in 1949. Wow. Um, yeah. So she did a couple things. But really after 1933, she pretty much stopped films. And, and the argument is that because of that scandal, that was right. the reason. So that's the, that's the air quote sex scandal, um, which is a weird way to put it. <laughs> I don't think we'd call it that today. Um, and frankly, I, a little bit like props to her that she apparently, if some dude was abusing her, um, it, she didn't put up with it, but, uh, we don't know the, you know, the, and, and what's weird is there's trials and there's very little data and info asked to, I mean, it's gotta be on record if this was, was happening. Yeah. Isn't there like a court record or something? Yeah, there has to be, but people have been not particularly interested in digging it up. Okay. Um, I, and then this is me not going deep. She actually died in 1983. Oh, wow. In she Los Angeles. A long time. She did. Yeah. And she has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So, R.I.P. Alice. 
I thought she was beautiful. I think she did a great job. And that was, we just saw her a little bit. Like, I imagine she did a bunch of other films. But you could see that she could have the star power. It just didn't work out. Well, if she worked with Joan Crawford. Look, if she yeah. worked with Joan Crawford and people thought she was difficult to work with, I mean, <laughs> come on now. Yeah. All right, Mike, you have developed a character based on this film that people can use in their tabletop role-playing games that they can download for free. We're going to tell them where at the end of the episode. But in the meantime, you are going to tell us who this character is and a little bit about them. So who did you cook up? It's not Millie Scripps. <laughs> Good. I have too much respect for Millie. Good. Um, no, uh, it's Philip. Philippe? Philip. Philip Montrose. Um, which is funny because it's this is one of those things... I, it's fascinating when you make these villains because what it means is I start at the end and go backwards. Um, so I sort of look at the villain in isolation. And of course, that's not how you experience the film, right? You sort of come around to Philip being the villain. Uh, you don't start there. So it's always fascinating because I, I sort of watch the film in reverse and then watch the film again in the correct way. And you get a very different perspective. Not every film is that way. Sometimes pretty obvious. Some villains sort of stay the same no matter who you pick, uh, I, Baba Yaga being one example, she was, you pretty much had her pegged. It didn't, didn't matter even which way you looked You need to watch at her. the movie. The movie was right. called Baba Yaga. Yeah. 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 Um, but Philip's uh, sort of an interesting character. And so I, I've had a few of these guys, because as you mentioned, they are <laughs> needle wielding maniacs who put stuff in phones. Um, but he's different. He is uh, essentially sort of what we call the blue beard. We talked about this previously where there are characters who marry with the intent to in inherit. So that's his thing, but he's given himself some street cred by being a criminologist. And again, in fantasy campaigns and Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, uh, you have to sort of allow for that. Right. So uh, we actually create that in, in the Gothic villain supplement, but he is essentially an expert at uh, assassination. Right. And so what he does is he lays traps. And so he doesn't assassinate outright. He's not the kind of person who's just going to stab you. He's very good at setting traps. Um, and by sweat setting these traps up, he essentially uh, tricks you into killing yourself. Uh, and he is, because he's this brilliant uh, criminologist, he has ratiocination, which is something uh, Edgar Allan Poe invented. Uh, maybe not invented, but certainly popularized in uh, modern media, which was the idea of the detective that we've seen now. That's your Sherlock Holmes um, that's August Dupont and a bunch of other folks. So he he's this interesting villain that I think fits in. He's not my most compelling. I think he sort of is a little generic. He's basically like a rogue or a thief who knows how to use his skills. Instead of picking locks, he places picking, you know, disabling traps. He places them in, in uh, places. But he uh, he's definitely a kind of character that you could see. You'd have to track him down. And because he has the insight to look into people's sort of way they think, he's a little dangerous in, in some ways because he can almost read your mind that way. Um, so he's he's a definitely kind of a upper-class villain, uh, a mid-tier villain, but I think still came out interesting anyway. Uh, what's funny is in isolation, he's sort of boring uh, without the film, right? So the film circumstances are way more compelling than the villain at the end. But uh, we did give him give him his due, I think. All right, so he's a rogue, so mm -hmm. high dexterity, I'm guessing also yes. high intelligence. What else can you Correct. tell me about his stats? And he's charismatic, so um, he is a, sort of a man of leisure who, uh, <laughs> they, there was another guy like this who he always had like a smoking jacket on. He's that kind of guy. Um, he, he seems reputable, right? So uh, that's something that's very important to him. But yeah, you nailed it. 
Exactly. It's dexterity, intelligence, and then charisma for him to be able to pull this off because he is essentially his, what he does is he finds a rich uh, woman, presumably maybe a widow or someone who is, is unmarried or unattached, sweeps in, wines and dines, makes sure he's sort of in the in line for inheritance and then lays a trap. Uh, and servants are often the ones who are witness to a lot of this stuff. They are the people that are his probably his greatest enemy, frankly. So he goes after them too. Um, but clearly at the end, he's also going to go after the, the, his bride uh, and then leaves town. So, and rinse and repeat. So he's, he's a little bit of a sort of a solo villain who uh, you could see characters on his trail, right? Sort of going, well, this happened. Why? It doesn't make any sense. And uh, I, <laughs> I, because it was so unrealistic, and this is Dungeons & Dragons fantasy campaign, I made it a poison needle, not just a needle that shoots into your brain and kills you. That makes a lot of sense. And poison was never brought up, but if it had been, I would have accepted the murder weapon uh, a, a lot more than I did uh, because of that. So this character, I'm getting a sense that maybe he's running in high society here in order to find these heiresses. So where might he be plopped into a campaign? Yeah, I mean, look, mansions are great for this kind of thing. Um, he's certainly the kind of character. He literally has a special ability to put poison needles in things. So you want clutter. You want places where he can do that, right? Um, it's probably not a rural area, um, but it also isolation works well for him. Um, so the idea being where he's sort of in a mansion, a castle or somewhere where there's lots of stuff um, that he can sort of lay his traps uh, without being detected easily. So yeah, he definitely uh, sort of relies on the what I, what I, you said, the heiress, I think that's right. Like sort of nobles with lots of things, uh, and possessions. And that is something he's preying on, right? First he's, he wants the money obviously, but he's also relying on that clutter to allow him to sort of get away with stuff. And by the way, that's also again, why servants are his enemy, right? So anyone who's a cleaner, anyone who cleans or otherwise tidies really could potentially come across his stuff and either accidentally trigger it or figure out he did it. Um, so, he, those are the folks he goes after first, so he can create that clutter to allow him to lay his traps. And when you say clutter, I'm thinking about physical clutter, but I'm also thinking about all of the people that are around. So the clutter of people. And if you've mm -hmm. ever listened to or, or uh, read books about true crime, when you see the fictionalized ones, there's only a certain amount of characters, right? But when you go into like real world crime, there are so many people that are around that could have been involved, that made decisions, that had impacts on what happened. So I'm also thinking about how high society, you know an awful lot of people, you're around an awful lot of people, and if you are an heiress, you probably have a lady's maid who takes care of your person, and then you have a maid that takes care of your room, probably more than one. There's another maid that starts the fire in the morning, and then you've got the ones that are just taking care of the household, the cook and the butler and the, you know, whatever. So there's just a lot of people around. And who's going to suspect the well-bred gentleman, right? You're going to start looking at all of these other people who, you know, may probably did not like their boss because honestly, who likes their boss? <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny you bring this up too, because he, um, he's charming, literally. He actually has the ability to charm. It's something called Twisting Words, and he has a legendary action, which is called Corrupting Guidance. And both of them allow him essentially to really 
get people to do things for him too. So, you know, he almost has a vice-like grip very often, probably on the heiress, but other people he can sway under his, his sort of uh, influence that really, I think, ends up making him really difficult to pin down. Because uh, to your point, there's other people you would assume. And in some cases, he could make them look gu- guilty. Right. Right. And, and, and also, again, if you are investigating a murder, you are probably also a person that is very high esteemed in society. And you're mm-hmm. not going to believe that one of your peers is going to be capable of this. You are going to look to what you consider to be people of a lower class. And that would be the people that are taking care of the household. So, you know, really, um, he could get away with a lot, I think, in, in exploiting the class system that he finds. He'd get away with murder. Yeah, 100%. All right, so if people want to download this character, and I know they do, where can they (laughs) find him along with the 49 other characters that we are creating in this series of movies? So Philip is part of uh, 5E Foes, Gothic Villains. That is a PDF that we have as part of our patronage. So if you join patreon.com slash T-A-L-I-E-N, Italian, that has that included. If you, uh, at tier three, you get it, you get access to it. Um, but we're also releasing him for free. So every week we release one villain. Uh, we don't le- release every piece of it, just as sort of uh, an overview of his stats and information, as well as this character video uh, talking about uh, Philip and sort of what he does. But the, the supplement, as you mentioned, is all 50. Um, and that is a compatible with 5e RPG, Gothic Adventures. So that's, a, and you can get them as a bundle. And that sort of gives you the end-to-end sort of gothic kind of characters that these uh, tropes play so well into. But yeah, so, and you can also buy 5e foes gothic villains on DriveThruRPG. So that's available as well, um, which we have links to all that. So it's available on Patreon. It's available for free. It's available on DriveThruRPG. And uh, the supplement contains a lot more information. I sort of hinted at that uh, in terms of much more of the organizations. Uh, One of the things that Philip specifically and these kind of criminologist characters work well is if you have an organization that actually does criminal investigations, which is very unusual for a Dungeons and Dragons world very often. Not actually not unusual for Dungeons and Dragons, but it requires some explanation if it's a medieval world. So we give those organizations for you to work with in the supplement to sort of explain that. Um, and it is something that, uh, again, Poe knew that to, if he wanted to write horror story, uh, murder mysteries he, that you could solve, he really wanted to make it that uh, he wanted to rationalize it. And that's why he sort of invented these kinds of characters. So we give you the rules to help do that yourself. So characters like Philip uh, can stride the world and people take them seriously. Uh, and, or not immediately be suspicious of them, as we all have become <laughs> when when a rich playboy decides he's good at crime uh, or a criminal investigation. So, yeah, you add all those up, and I think you can download them anywhere. But patreon.com slash Italian is where you'll get them for free. Right. And I will also mention that you can follow along for free going to patreon.com slash Italian. You can follow that there is no cost to do so, and you will get notified of new content as it becomes available. And you can also follow World of Wellstar all over the interwebs, and you will find other fun tidbits from this podcast and other various content, and that, of course, is also free to do. And if you want to support us, you can do so at the patreon.com slash Italian through very small monetary uh, amount that you can give to follow along, or like... Share, 
subscribe, comment below. All of those things go a long way towards getting more eyes and ears on this content. I will put all of this information in the show notes along with whatever the hell else that I find that is interesting. <laughs> so I do recommend that you check that out. I do put attention to the show notes. Not every podcast does. I promise you there is stuff there that you will enjoy. All right, Mike, I feel like that is wrapping it up for Murder at Midnight from 1931. We are at episode 30. <laughs> we have more movies behind us than we have in front of us. Let the 2020 countdown begin. All right. I swear yeah. there had better not be any more phones used as murder <laughs> weapons. I don't think I could take any more. <laughs> It is it is pretty wild that this is how the writers of the time were choosing to murder people in their fiction. My new out of office is going to be, I'm not dead, it's just my day off. <laughs> <laughs> and only I and you will get that, but it is fine. It's okay. Maybe one day we'll find someone else who does. And of course, that person will immediately become a very close friend. All right, that will do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Mike, for all of the work that you do on this show and for making it through 30 movies with me so far. Oh, it's been a pleasure, my love. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Mike Tresca.